Do you struggle with concentration? Have you ever thought of your brain health long-term? Bomar Nutrition is revolutionizing the nootropic and cognitive health industry with sharp nootropic powder and patent-pending bright daily capsules, powered by NeuroBloom. If you struggle with focusing, think of Sharp as brain food that supports concentration. Sharp works with your natural brain chemistry to provide a heightened sense of well-being that can delay cognitive decline and also increase mood. Bomar Sharp tastes amazing and comes in many different flavors, available in caffeinated and non-caffeinated versions. While Sharp is a short-term aid in cognitive health, think of Bright Daily Capsules as a way to improve overall brain health and prevent cognitive decline long-term. As we age, so does our brain. Supplementing with Bright has the potential to delay this aging process and helps your brain function optimally. Stay ahead of the curve and order yours today at bomarnutrition.com and save $5 off with code GENIUS5. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs, the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Jason Kindrichuk, PhD. He's an assistant professor. Uh, he holds the uh, Canadian Research Chair in Molecular Pathogenesis of Emerging and Reemerging Viruses. He's part of the Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases, all of this at University of Manitoba. So Jason, thanks for coming back. Hey, thanks for having me on. If you would uh, tell listeners about your research, what are you focused on? Yeah, so m- most of what I'm focused on, it, you know, really in a nutshell, is the the circulation, transmission, and and pathogenesis of emerging viruses, which really means, you know, where are these viruses hiding in nature? Why and how do they spill over from, you know, from their wild animal reservoirs uh, into humans or in other animals? And what happens when they get there? It's complex. It's, you know, there, there's molecular virology, there's clinical aspects, there's obviously social science aspects and conservational aspects, but it's, it's really what we do and, and kind of, you know, what, what I enjoy doing. Well, what are you focused on, a particular virus or pathogen? There's a few things, right? So listen, the Ebola virus is what got me into into this game in the first place way back when uh, when the hot zone came out and then, you know, an outbreak came out on uh, on VHS, for those that remember uh, VHS systems still. You know, that, that kind of pulled me in. I, I think it was that, you know, this impression that there are these viruses in nature that, you know, can have, you know, case fatality rates of 50% or more, you know, and, and can wipe out whole communities in short periods of time. It was really this kind of epiphany that, oh, I, you know, I lead a very sheltered life in, in not realizing the impacts of infectious disease. You know, so Ebola uh, has and always will be a, a focal point of, of what we do. We, in particular, are, are very, very interested in this idea of persistence, you know, th- this idea of, you know, long-term persistence of the virus in, in patients that recover. We see certainly in male patients, up to 50% of, of male patients are, uh, at least from modeling, are, are believed to, to still harbor infectious virus up to four months post-recovery within their reproductive tract. That's concerning for us from a, a containment standpoint, from a, a certainly a, a clinical and human health aspect of trying to curb transmission. We've seen now viruses move 
from people that had no idea that they were still infected into uh, into their loved ones or into their community, even years following their recovery. So we're trying to understand why that happens, how it happens, and what we need to provide for these survivors of the long term. What, what are the long term health consequences of these persistent infections? And, and what are the long term health impacts we see in, in people that recover? So we're focused on trying to understand where the virus is in, in nature that still is you know, I think a big question for us, we've moved into COVID research, looking at, I think, every aspect imaginable, primarily focusing right now on different animal species beyond humans uh, that, that are harboring SARS-CoV-2. So where has this virus gone into in wildlife? What is the potential for spillback from wildlife into humans? What does viral evolution look like in these animals? And then, of course, we we take on, you know, every other emerging virus that kind of gets thrown at us. So, you know, influenza is always on uh, on the periphery. We're certainly, you know, I think gearing up to to try and help out with what's going on with H5 right now and its movement across the globe. So we're focused on one virus with, with Ebola primarily, but we take on pretty much everything we can from an interest and a public health standpoint. Well, let's talk about Ebola, but I guess first a generic question. Beyond what are commonly known as retroviruses, have you seen any viruses that are able to endogenize into any animal or person's DNA that is not yeah. a retrovirus? For our work, we, we have it, right? And this has been this certainly this complicated question right now with, with Ebola virus in, in regards to persistence. You know, we, we, we and others have shown that in, in cell culture. So in the lab, we can get long-term infections of, you know, weeks to months in cells with Ebola virus, where the virus does not wipe the cells out, which is, you know, it happens in a, a subset of, of cells. Uh, it doesn't happen in every cell type. And it starts to say, you know, we'll give you some influence and, and kind of interest in the fact that, oh, this can happen. But the longer term question is, okay, so that happens in weeks to maybe a couple of months when you're working in, in a very isolated system. Now we're looking at patients where you're looking at persistence in months to years. That's a much broader question of how is it doing this. I think that we have a number of theories. RNA viruses, certainly negative sense RNA viruses that you know don't have the ability to integrate. It's likely not latency, it's not integration, but we don't fully understand what's going on. So a lot of questions to be answered. It sounds like these viruses are going into, um, I guess, a latent period where the person doesn't experience symptoms, but the virus is still hanging out there. And then there's, well, does there have to be a triggering event where the person gets sick and then they spread it? Or do some people seem to be able to spread it even when a virus, again, appears to be latent and they're asymptomatic? This is such a great question, right? And, and certainly something that that we're trying to, to try, you know, get a little bit of, uh, of spotlight on with, uh, with with the work that we're doing with survivors. So what, what happens? What, you know, what does this persistent infection look like? And why do we see, you know, months to years where there's no transmission and then suddenly there is a transmission event? I don't think we fully know. I think part of it is you know, certainly in the shorter time frame, we know right now the recommendations from our World Health Organization and others, you know, are, are, are very much heavily in, in regards to, to sexual transmission for, for survivors. So this idea of, you know, using different types of, of protections to be able to try to reduce viral transmission, that, that's certainly important. The question, though, when we start looking at years is really what has happened? Has there been some sort of, you know, a, a stress event or an immunological event that has led to the release? Now, the thing we can say with our, certainly, I should say our patients, but with these survivors that have the persistent infections, 
is that if you do a traditional blood diagnostic, they're negative, okay? So even though they're harboring massive amounts of virus in, in their semen, we don't see any sort of spillover of virus, at least that's detected back across the blood test's barrier. So it looks like at the very least, the virus gets into the testes, it doesn't seem to be leaking back out. So now we get into this question of say, okay, well, it's probably not a stress event that is leading to, you know, recrudescence, kind of like what we've seen with, uh, with a Scottish nurse who had virus in her central nervous system. And then we saw recrudescence and the virus came back out and she, you know, she was positive by blood diagnostic and, and uh, was viremic. We don't see these with these patients. So it's probably not a stress event, but then it's a question of, you know, is the overall amount of virus, do we see that it kind of plateaus or that there's a persistent phase and then it drops off? Does it go through ebbs and flows? I think those are the bigger questions we don't know. Certainly in the month's time frame, it looks like, listen, we, you know, we get to a peak when we're able to start assessing semen from patients and it slowly goes down to the, the limit of detection over the span of, of a few months. In the year time or the you know multiple years time frame, we don't know, and I think that's going to be really important, certainly for for the work that uh, Pierre Fermente and, and others from WHO and, and across uh, Central and West Africa that uh, that that they're doing in assessing you know cohorts of patients over the long term period. We certainly well, want to look you, at the same. If you if you have latency of months or even years, and how do you, well even any latency, how do you know that it's attributable to a certain person? This is the big thing with with Ebola virus, right? Is that the mutation rate and the evolutionary rate appears to slow down when it gets into the testes. And so one of the things we've been able to do is actually use sequencing to be able to look to match up people, you know, when we see new outbreaks, whether or not there is a relationship back to a prior circulating virus. And then we can start to put things together and say, okay, where, you know, who was positive? What you know was the the mode of uh, epidemiological transmission? So that has actually helped us in this regard. Is that we have the slower evolutionary rate for for Ebola virus in in this situation doesn't transfer over to all other RNA viruses. But at the very least, what we can now do is look at outbreaks and say, okay, is this attributable? to a potential persistent infection, or does it look to be something that is new, that was not identified in a prior outbreak, and thus likely relates to a new spillover? Kind of what we're seeing right now in the DRC in their latest outbreak, which was sequencing results within days said, listen, this looks like this is a brand new spillover and not from you know from a persistent infection. What, so you're looking at semen, so I guess you're only looking at men, but why semen? Why not look at blood and, you know, maybe sweat, breath, et cetera, yeah. to get a complete profile. Maybe the latency is not showing up in semen, but showing up more in blood or breath. Yeah, you know, it's a great question, right? And certainly this is something that, uh, you know, way, way back in, you know, kind of my, my prior days when I was still still at uh, NIH, we had a, a patient that was uh, that was cared for at the Special Clinical Studies Unit that was a U.S. healthcare worker, got infected in Sierra Leone. And we ultimately, or our department, Critical Care Medicine, was able to provide him care and and got him through, through to his recovery. One of the things we were able to do was we had a clinical protocol to be able to get biological samples from that patient longitudinally throughout throughout his illness. Problem was, obviously, you can't get semen from a patient that is, that is in critical condition, but we were able to get things like you know blood, sweat, urine, feces, uh, other materials to be able to look at this. Now, when we look at, at those rates, and certainly not only us, but others, we don't see that same rate of persistence, right? We get into this area of saying, okay, where are the immune privileged niches within the immune privileged areas within an organism or within a person where we would likely see persistence, central nervous system, 
certainly the reproductive tract within males and, and obviously the eyes have been another region. And then can we start to look at persistence? So there are groups that are looking at central nervous system, certainly groups that have been doing this with non-human primates from uh, looking at uh, historical samples. We've been doing it from semen because that's one of the, you know, our concerns from a containment aspect and outbreak standpoint is we have patients that are positive that don't necessarily know that they're positive unless they get their semen tested. So we need to be able to try and figure out all of the pieces of this puzzle to be able to, to provide, uh, I think, better supportive care and recommendations. Do we have people that are, again, they'll, they'll get Ebola, they won't test them and then they're, they're forever fine or at some point they all of a sudden get sick? Well, so that's the thing with the with the persistent infections with at least with with reproductive tract. We haven't seen these patients show any signs of or physiological symptoms of disease. So you have patients that have for long periods of time have these reproductive tract uh, infections that are persistent, but in the absence of any physiological symptoms of disease. And if you test them by blood diagnostic, they're negative. So you have patients that have no idea that they are infected. And right now, our only diagnostic method to be able to find out if they have virus within the reproductive tract is by assessing semen, which becomes a bigger issue in terms of trying to get patients that will provide semen samples. How do you do this? And certainly in the field, it, it is not easy. Well, how do people tend to first experience Ebola typically? Do they get it from you know respiratory droplets or do they get it from, I don't know, consuming bushmeat? Like, what's the predominant way you identify yeah, great question. You know, so when we look at uh, Ebola infections in general, the majority of these are happening between, you know, from, from contact with, with infected animals. And this can be through a couple sources, right? One is we think bats and fruit bats in particular are the reservoir species for this virus. So direct contact with humans and bats, um, whether it's with the bats in regards to their biological fluids or if there's any sort of a bite, we think that can likely lead to transmission. Though I have to say, we still have not been able to recover infectious Ebola virus from a bat. So our understanding of what that transmission chain looks like is, is certainly somewhat cloudy. But we also know that bats interact with a number of other animals, some of these of which are non-human primates. And we know that animals like gorillas and chimpanzees can be infected in the wild by Ebola viruses uh, and have a, a, a very similar overall clinical picture to what humans do. Well, we know that humans obviously hunt some of these types of animals or non-human primates as wild game in different areas of the world. If you put those people in contact and you have the potential for somebody with you know, small cuts on their skin, skin abrasions, you know, they're cleaning meat and they have exposure to blood that has high amounts of virus, that's a potential route of exposure. Or if it's able to transfer into their mouth or their eyes or their nose through those mucous membranes, there is your index case. Once you have that index case in, in the first human, then human-to-human transmission can start to occur through close contact, mostly through contaminated fluids. So things like vomit, diarrhea, blood, these samples we know are, are laden with, with Ebola virus. And of course, when people are, are sick, so when they vomit or when they have diarrhea, if you're in close contact, as that fluid is coming out, there's, there's dissemination of you know, droplets and probably some even aerosols in very, very short distance that likely have virus. So people that are in close contact, as long as they have exposure through their mucous membranes or through abrasions on their skin, they can potentially get, get infected. And then, of course, sex appears to, to be linked to this as well, though we're still, I think, a, a little bit behind the eight ball in understanding what that looks like. Are there, um, I wonder if there's two kinds of latency, like, you know, if, if I get exposed to flu 
the latency could be because the virus is replicating and building up to the point where now it's ready to you know, really cause me problems and make me sick. But it seems like there's other kinds of latency where the virus you know, will go quiet for weeks, months, years, and there's probably some signaling or maybe, I don't know, some kind of quorum sensing of maybe infected cells that aren't uh, actively infected. And the virus says, all right, at this point, we're ready to, to, uh, you know, to make a move again and attack. So it, again, have you observed that there's two kinds of latency? Or is, well, have you gone deeply into latency and how it works? Or has anyone? Yeah, so there, there's a couple things, right? So the first thing with, with Ebola, certainly when we think about infections, people that are infected, as you know, as we're going through that pre-symptomatic period, virus is building up, it's it's moving out through, you know, through their blood system. So it moves into their into their lymph nodes first, through their immune cells, and starts to disperse around around the body. They are not able to transmit virus up until the point that that they become symptomatic. I guess one of the saving graces for us with Ebola is that patients will not be able to transmit until they're symptomatic. So from a containment standpoint, we're not dealing with the same situation we're dealing with right now with COVID or even with influenza, where you can have this pre-symptomatic transmission and then it's much more difficult to get things contained. Your other question, though, in regards to this persistence aspect is certainly something we're, we're focused on. So when we think about the reproductive tract, where our work focuses specifically on the blood testis barrier in the males, the virus appears to be able to move into the testes uh, through the blood testis barrier, with, which functions kind of like a, you know, like a dam, kind of like we see in the central nervous system with the blood brain barrier. So what this does is it restricts immune cells from being able to move into the testes because this is where our, our sperm is, is maturing. And obviously, we, we don't want to have autoimmune reactions against, against our gametes. So the virus gets into there. What we see then, at least in, in our work, and looking directly at, at some of these blood testis barrier cells, is that the virus is able to replicate and actually replicate at least in cell culture to fairly high titer and fairly high amounts. But the cells don't have this really strong kind of apoptotic cell death response. The cells actually seem to be quite okay with it. So they're not mounting massive inflammatory response. They're probably suppressing replication just enough so that the cells don't get triggered into apoptosis, but not enough to actually completely quell the virus from, from being able to replicate. So then the virus is just spilling over into sperm, into seminal fluid, and then moving out through sexual contact. So you know, it, it's difficult because we have this you know, phenomenon where the virus gets into the testes. We don't think it's moving back out across the testes, back into blood system, into the interstitial spaces where it can start to disseminate across, you know, throughout uh, the throughout the the person. But we don't necessarily know what's happening at that barrier. Is it that you have enough of an immune response that even if virus spills out, it doesn't actually result in viremia, or is the virus actually just not even spilling out whatsoever? So there's no pathology. Uh, or disruption of the blood test's barrier. And I would say right now, our data suggests, at least for Ebola virus, the latter. Hmm, okay. I've heard, I guess, with Ebola that no one really knows what the reservoirs are in the wild, where it comes from. Is that is that the case? And how close have you gotten to figuring out where it comes from and where it goes? When it's, it's <laughs> yeah, this is... Man, this is the uh, the the forty five year old or forty six year old question now of you know where is Ebola hiding and and how do we figure out you know what what it's doing in the wild? I will go back to saying we have not recovered infectious Ebola virus from a bat at this point or from a fruit bat, and that's you know taking into account decades of research doing surveillance within fruit bats and taking samples and, and looking for it. Now, there's a couple of things to, to keep in mind here. One is, first of all, for, for Marburg virus, which is you know Ebola's, I think, you know, bigger, badder brother in, in many ways, 
Marburg virus has been recovered from, from bats. So that, that starts to tell us that, okay, field viruses, the, the family of field viruses looks like it, it actually is utilizing fruit bats as, as reservoirs. And by the way, we've seen uh, Yovio virus, which is another newer field virus recently identified in bats from Hungary. So the, the tail of the tape would say for philos, likely fruit bats. Well, for Ebola, we've also found fragments of genome. So not the whole genome yet, but at least fragments, which suggest the virus was there. Um, but we've also seen serologically that bats also will produce antibodies against the virus. So again, the virus was there, they were exposed. We don't know what infection looks like, but all the data leads us to saying, okay, likely likely that bats are the reservoir. Are there other incidental hosts beyond or intermediate hosts beyond those we've identified? That's still a question. But I, I think all the data tends to lead us in one direction. And then if you look at the outbreaks across Central and West Africa, and then you overlay fruit bat migratory patterns, you get this really nice picture of specific fruit bat species that appear to overlay almost, I wouldn't say perfectly, but but very plausibly with, again, if you look at, at those migratory patterns for fruit bats and you overlay uh, the migratory patterns for different species of fruit bats over top of outbreaks that have occurred across Central Africa and obviously the West African epidemic, you get this picture, specific fruit bat species whose migratory patterns overlay uh, very plausibly with, with these outbreaks. So not only does our molecular evidence tell us that fruit bats are the likely reservoir even the migratory patterns suge highly suggest that this is likely the case. So you do think it comes from bats, what, bats that would bite uh, people or bats that would bite cattle or bats that would bite monkeys? Or well, this, Yeah, it, it gets so complicated, right? Because it, certainly when we start to think about this from a, uh, you know, say a conservation aspect or, or an ecological aspect, we have to start to think about, okay, well, what you know, what, what is driving these events of transmission? Because first of all, not every fruit bat or every species of a, of a particular fruit bat are infected at any one period of time. So you have this tiny fraction of, of bats that are probably infected and, and actually have replicating virus. Then you have to start to look at things like seasonal patterns. So when are animals going to be in close proximity to one another? So if we know that, you know, great apes, different non-human primates, even dukers, which are these small uh, deer in, in Central Africa, these animals have shown positivity for Ebola virus. Well, when are those animals likely in close proximity to bats? Well, it looks like during the wet season, not so much. There's a lot of fruit and, and a lot of food for these animals, but in the dry season, there probably is a greater likelihood that these animals are foraging at the same location. So not only do you get circulation within bats and an increased circulation just through contact and fighting and biting and reproduction, but you probably also get transmission events, whether it's through droppings, whether it's through biting, whether it's through contaminated fruit, we, we don't know. But the likelihood starts to get us back into this triangle of saying, okay, bats, uh, other intermediate hosts or incidental hosts, and then we add in humans, and the likely contact pattern is probably with both bats as well as as the infected uh, animals. Thank you very much, Jason Kindrichuk, for coming to the podcast. It's a very interesting issue. I just, for some reason, I think it's very fascinating. I hope listeners will think so as well. So thank you both. Do you struggle with concentration? Have you ever thought of your brain health long-term? Bomar Nutrition is revolutionizing the nootropic and cognitive health industry with sharp nootropic powder and patent-pending bright daily capsules, powered by NeuroBloom. If you struggle with focusing, think of Sharp as brain food that supports concentration. 
Sharp works with your natural brain chemistry to provide a heightened sense of well-being that can delay cognitive decline and also increase mood. Bomar Sharp tastes amazing and comes in many different flavors, available in caffeinated and non-caffeinated versions. While Sharp is a short-term aid in cognitive health, think of Bright Daily Capsules as a way to improve overall brain health and prevent cognitive decline long-term. As we age, so does our brain. Supplementing with Bright has the potential to delay this aging process and helps your brain function optimally. Stay ahead of the curve and order yours today at bomarnutrition.com and save $5 off with code GENIUS5. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.